SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. This is the symbol of the goat. The pet of Satan. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, with me as Thrasher. I'll be back, and now I'm back, and back I shall go, and back and forth, and back to front, and baby got back. That's right, we are talking about The Expendables 2, which has... Uh, I'd say it's fair to say it's more comedic than the first film and has a lot of uh, lines from actors referring to their past uh, roles in action films. So, <laughs> And you told me uh, after the recording for the previous episode on the uh, first Expendables, you had said you thought I was going to like this movie better. And I, you are I right. So. I, yeah. I did like this movie better. But up to a point, but we'll get into that as we go through it. Right. Um, okay. Exactly. So, with all that, we um, Expendables two came out two years after the first one, so just in twenty twelve. Uh. And uh, directed by Simon West. Screenplay by Sylvester Stallone and Richard Wink. Yeah, story by David Augusto, Ken Kaufman, and Richard Wink, based on characters by David Callahan. Starring you know, pretty much everyone from the first film, but you have some new people on board. You have Liam Hemsworth and Jean-Claude Van Damme, very new people in the cast. Uh, again, music by Brian Tyler, Tyler, cinematography by Shelley Johnson, and so forth. So... And uh, off a budget of 100 million, this made 315 million. This is the highest grossing movie in the Expendables series to date. And you you mentioned uh, that pretty much all the cast returns. The the only notable absence is Mickey Rourke. That's true, and it, it's a uh, it's too bad because I thought he was one of the better things of the first movie, even though it was a small part. And I thought maybe he'd pop up for a cameo. His absence is glaring. It is, um, which is too bad. But yeah, and, and he doesn't come back in the third one either. I'm not really sure why. Uh, but I mean, the also I, we forgot to mention Chuck Norris is in this film. That's it. Oh big, yes. But get so, I mean, so I mean, you look at the sort of beginning of this movie, just like in the first one. It's sort of like a James Bond film where they do a little self-contained mission. But the first one, it was dark, both. Uh, thematically and and visually it was you know rescuing hostages from a somali pirate ship and uh had a lot of you know assassinations and all this stuff going on but this one it's much more uh bright it's outside they're going to nepal to rescue a uh 
uh, Chinese hostage Dr. Zhao, and um, right away the tone I think is completely different, and the cast seems more uh, confident. You see them; uh, they have names on their different uh, vehicles they're riding into town with, and these these vehicles are orky as fuck. <laughs> They they are they are these ramshackle contraptions with other vehicles bolted onto them that have all these gadgets and features that are used in the most improbable ways. My my favorite being the vehicle with the com with the uh, armored cow catcher, but it's not on the front of the vehicle; it's on the back. On the front of the vehicle is a motorcycle. Which is not used as a vehicle, it's used as a weapon when the motorcycle is revved and f- effectively launches itself into a helicopter, bringing it down. No, to use the cow catcher, they've got to turn around, Tokyo Drift style, dr- and drive backwards because the cow catcher is on the back. Yeah, I mean, I think right at that moment where they're uh, trying to take up the helicopter and they launch the motorcycle into it and knock the helicopter down, that's when you know sort of they're going for a more over-the-top tone. Uh, the the director in this, Simon West, I think he does a better job of making it more uh, obvious with the geography of where things are and, and the fight scenes uh, and the battle sequences. And, and Simon West is best known for directing things like Con Air, and the original uh, Tomb Raider movie. Yeah, the because this intro is so much dumb action movie stuff, but taken to such an extreme, it transcends itself. I loved this intro, this this introductory scene. How this introductory scene was so good, however, that the rest of the movie failed to live up to it for me. Sure, it's uh, it, and it's sort of like the lurching tone you saw in the original. And this one, like it begins, I think it's a good mixture of the humor and the action. And then as we go on, it gets kind of too serious, and then it gets too silly, and uh, and we'll talk about it. But what do you think about the reveal at the end about um, someone else that's captured happens to be uh, Trench, the character played by Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah, because he he's got a bag over his head. So the whole so and the whole time you think that the guy and he's being tortured. The whole time you think that he's the guy they're coming to rescue, he's just kind of a, a bonus because he happens to be there. Because he had gone in alone to rescue Doctor Zhao and had been and had been captured. Um, Doctor Zhao was just handcuffed in the corner of the room. We we never really learned who Doctor Zhao is, other than he's a billionaire. I guess he was being held for for ransom. Uh, but it was it was actually it was it was nice having the reveal of of uh, Schwarzenegger. He gets to be a bit more active in this movie, which I, I appreciated. I really lamented the fact that we didn't get to see him engaged in, in any action in the first film. We finally get to see that in this film. Both him and Bruce Willis get to partake in the mayhem. That's right, and it, it really helps. The film uh, helps it a lot. Schwarzenegger looks like he's having fun here. He was a bit stiff, I think, in the first one, where they're just speaking in a church. Uh, there wasn't much going on there. But you, um, after all that, you have, um... Well, well, as part of this escape, did you notice the outright impossible thing that happened? I mean, there's a few impossible things, but which one were you well, thinking of? Well, the one that really jumps out is when they, when they leave the compound, they zip line down these heavy industrial power cables down to, to a riverbank, and... 
the way they the way they zip line, you know, they just use like zip lines on the power cables. Um, you know, d- dangerous, but I guess survivable. But every time they get close to where the power lines hook up to the po- to the towers, <clears throat> they always cut away from the. They always cut away to something else and then cut back. So they have zip lines that apparently can travel through solid matter because they never get stopped whenever they get to where the power line connects to the suspension on the tower. That's pretty crazy. I didn't notice that, but that's a good point. Um, yeah. But, they, you know, they get down to the water. There's a there's a jet ski and motorboat chase sequence. Uh, lots of jellyfied blood going everywhere. And the blood in this movie, it's a weird mix of practical effects and CGI. Uh, I'm not entirely sure I'm satisfied with either, but I liked it. I, I kept going back and forth between whether I liked that they were attempting to have some blood in these gunfights and whether they, they weren't. The action was so over the top. I felt like maybe it should be bloodless, like in a cheesy 80s action movie. It was interesting you say that because next week's film, Expendables 3, is PG-13 because it has no blood in it whatsoever. Huh. But there's still hundreds of people getting mowed down constantly. Um, so, you know, one of the new characters in the group is Billy, who is played by Liam Hemsworth, who's the yeah, there's youngest this... of the Hemsworth acting clan. And he has a cliche right out of an old World War II movie. Oh, the, the the rookie kid who dies. Rookie kid who dies, and he says, "Oh, he's just gonna he's doing this these jobs to save up money to to retire and live the easy life with his girlfriend." Oh yeah, I mean you you well you know he's not going to make it out because this movie this movie doesn't really do anything to to hang a lantern on it, but this is a prequel. And so if he wasn't in the first movie, you know he's not going to get out of this movie alive. What makes you say this is a prequel? Well, Dolph Lundgren is on the team and not dead. Ah. Unless this movie is supposed to be so over the top, we're supposed to assume that he just shrugged it off and now he's back on the team. Could be. Which seems really improbable. It's true. Um, Or it's just something they thought they'd work out later. Um... But yeah, they had they have another water plane uh, with another improbable weapon on the front. <laughs> they have a piece of heavy artillery, um, and and during the during the scene where they finally make it on the plane and they're escaping on the plane, it did it did point out something. There was a lot of CGI in this movie, which I yep. felt was pretty transparent, and it's very very glaring when we see the plane, uh, sp- you know, spraying CGI water uh, up into the sky in its wake. It is, I think, also some of the CG helicopter stuff from before was a little bit noticeable, uh, but you're right with the plane, that's kind of a shame it's so noticeable, because the plane is such a specific um, part of these Expendables movies. And I know it was uh, critical in the first film that Jet Li just kind of vanishes for a while. This film does the same thing. When they make good their escape, Jet Li uh, uh, just puts on a parachute and jumps out of a hatch with Dr. Zhao to deliver him in person to to their contact in Beijing. And then that's it. He's gone. <laughs> and as he goes, they make a sort of racist joke about Chinese takeout. Oh, God, yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. 
Well, there, there are there are there are a number uh, a number of, of uh, cracks in this movie that that are that are kind of suspect and and that yeah that is one of them. Uh, another another one comes later when they're uh, in that village, but we'll get to that when we finally get to that point in the story. Right. So we we move on and we see um, you know they're back at New Orleans in the bar, which was a big thing, and uh, Barney gets a. A mission briefing from Mr. Church, played by Bruce Willis. Yeah, and we get and we get a lot of uh, we get a lot of info from uh, Church, where it turns out apparently Barney was supposed to do a mission for him, and the mission failed. So Church's like, "Well, you owe me several million dollars, so I've got one crazy ass mission you're going to do for free, and then we'll call it even." And Bruce Willis is really good here. He's very intense. He's um, you know, much like Schwarzenegger, he seems to be more engaged with the material. And you know, this is, I don't know if you've noticed this, this is something I've noticed in a lot of, of movies that have come out over the past five years, um, where a character has like an info dump about some significant event that happened in the past that we don't get to see, and when I come out of the movie, I feel like, well, I would have rather have seen a movie about that. That's true, I mean, it's one of those, um, I mean, reminds me of the other sort of cliche where a, a character gets introduced and they said, oh, he was my, uh, you know, he was my closest friend, uh, back at the Academy, and it's someone you've never seen before. Yeah, some, something I've never, someone I've never talked about, <laughs> I've never hinted at, but don't worry, he's one of the most important people in my life, you'll, you'll, you'll come to love him. Yeah, I feel, and, and I've noticed that, that that's been a real trend of movies where some bit of expository dialogue suggests a more interesting movie than the film it's in. I mean, in, in many ways, with over-the-top, big-personality characters like this, I think it would be tremendously fun to see them in a movie where the whole mission goes to shit, and they barely make it out alive, and just making it out alive is the victory. Uh, it would be fun right. to see these characters deal with an interesting failure. Yeah, or even well, sort of like a you could do like a great escape sort of story where they get you know captured and they all have to get out of there. Yeah, yeah. Start with the failure, and then we see how they get out of that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I think that would be more interesting. But I mean, what um, what what the mission they're given is to uh, go to Albania, find a crashed airplane, and retrieve um, an important. There's, there's some special classified data that is that is hidden on the plane and they are given a uh, a technical expert who's a who's a woman Maggie Chan played by Yunnan and she's okay it just makes me wish you know expendables if it's all action stars and stuff could they have cast someone um that had been like in a lot of action movies, or it might have been better known. Well, this this is a role. Well, is that's like crying out to be played by like Michelle Yeoh. Like yeah, it should yeah. be. Like I, I suspect, I suspect that that she is in this movie as a as a concession to one of the the Chinese companies that that helped co produce this film. But like, if you're gonna if you're gonna go uh, if you're gonna go like for for an Asian actor or Asian actress, why not go for one that has as legendary a career as the guys in this film? I would love, I would love to see Michelle Yeoh in this role, and I would love to see her kick some ass. Uh, unfortunately, Yunnan doesn't get too many opportunities to do anything outside of the technical stuff. 
Right, and there's um, very forced flirtation between her and Barney. Oh, God, yeah. There's a scene where they're hunkered <laughs> down in an abandoned building eating, and they're all talking about food that they'd like to eat. And they're really just, it's just code word for who they want to have sex with. Yes. Uh, and, you know, a couple of them make some comments about, I could go for some Chinese, uh, yeah. which, is, which is really creepy. And, short, and uh, sorry, Stallone breaks the ice with, I don't know, Chinese overrated. You know, and it, does, it doesn't quite work. But you know, even even she and I'm sure I'm sure Stallone relished writing this line into the script, where she <laughs> talks about how. But I could really go for some Italian. Well, there you go. Right. It's you know, Stallone. You know, being his nickname for the age. longest time, being the Italian stallion. Yeah, it, it's real force, but okay, it's there. Um, so, but when. Uh, and, and there's a nice bit of uh, camaraderie between the team where they, they go into this plane and uh, it's, it's sort of booby trapped. So um, Caesar has to like hold open this door so it doesn't slam on them so she can get in and get the get the device. And it's it's weird because like it, it is kind of I I guess this is a, this is a scene where they they keep trying to introduce. It's, it's a hacking scene, and they keep trying to introduce tension into the hacking. And so, yeah, the, the, the spring-loaded, retractable armored doors that they have to hold open, that's one way to do it. But it's like, well, if they can't hold it open, they can just open it and try and try again. <laughs> but her first attempt to retrieve the data from the hard drive behind the door uh, fails, and then it turns out there's a bomb built into it, and she has to hack the bomb. And it's one of those things where... I get that the bomb is counting down and their lives are, are are at risk, but at the same time, it, it, it's just not that exciting to see someone tapping on a keyboard and saying, I just need a few more seconds. I, I've never felt like that's worked in a film. Like, it was, it's one of those yeah. moments where I think they could have turned things up to 11. I think they should have let the plane explode and we see everybody thrown clear of the blast. Uh, and then, you know, uh, have, uh, have Maggie Chan, you know, wisely point out, well, that date is so important they wouldn't just let it blow up. It's in a hardened black box and just, like, picks up the black box and then they can just use yeah. that. Oh, that could have been funny. Uh but, you know, I think that seems okay. At least it's having them do something different. I'll, it also, when you talked about it, it made me think the, the Expendables have such big firepower. Can't they just shoot a, ho a hole through the side of the plane and walk in and get it that way? Uh, I, I suppose so. Or, or And this is actually something. There's a lot of metal wreckage around there. Why not just, you know, grab a piece of that metal wreckage and use it to jam the door open? Oh, sure, yeah. Any reason? I mean, I've played enough adventure games to know that that's what you should do, is look for look for metal to use on door. Exactly, but, uh, and you think, okay, the heroes are, are victorious, but then they're surprised by uh, the, the villain of the piece, whose name is literally Jean Villon, played by Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> and he... He is hamming it up, and I love yeah. him in this movie. I, I like that him and his crew have starfish tattoos, and they're part of a, some, a satanic cult. 
Well, yeah, like he, it's it, yeah, he has this uh, this half pentagram, half goat tattoo, and he has this little speech: "The goat is the pet of the devil." Yeah, they they really work hard. And the, the other thing is, like when he's introduced, he's wearing these big sunglasses, and he wears them for so long, and he removes them so dramatically. I was like, "Oh God, he's gonna have a fucked up eye." Yeah. He doesn't, but I love that this movie made me think he was going to have a fucked up eye. <laughs> right, I mean, you can tell everything he does is uh, is business. They they do a good job of of setting him up, and he takes... Well, he and his uh, crew, he and his crew uh, were able to capture Billy the Kid when he was scouting ahead. Uh, and he holds Billy the Kid hostage. He wants the data on the drive and you know, yeah. threatens to kill Billy unless they hand it over. And there's a lot of tension in that scene. There is, because he makes the other Expendables get on their knees and not, not do anything. And There's some knife play. He threatens Billy with a knife. Right, which is... Uh, but, of course, uh, John Vallon, although he, he gets the item, he wants to really stick it to him, so he... He kicks a knife through Billy's heart. <laughs> yes, he round a guy. One of his henchmen just holds up a knife, and he yeah. roundhouse kicks it straight into Billy's heart. Like the, again, that that's that's the type of over the top action thing that that I love seeing. Uh, that's that's a moment where this movie really shines. Well, that's something you know, straight out of an eighties movie, and also it's a tip of the hat to Jean Claude Van Damme being known for. Uh, the muscles from Brussels for all the kicking, right? That was his big thing. Oh yeah. Well, that is that is supposedly how he ended up getting into movies because he started with Golden Globus, and according to uh, according to that uh, Golden Globus documentary that came out a few years ago, the way he started getting cast in movies is that he went to the Cannes Film Festival, and he just he tracked down I think a Mannheim Golan. And just kind of like walked up to him and just did a whole bunch of roundhouse kicks, just like a half inch away from his nose. And he said, I'm a pretty good fighter, right? Can you put me in a movie? Mm. <laughs> and he goes, yes, yes, I'll put you in all my movies. <laughs> but uh, you know, so, although something that, that jumped out at me, so Toll Road, um, Maggie Chen is going to hand over the, the drive and Toll Road says, you know, you know, give it to me. So she passes it to him and he's the one that delivers it. The whole, I th- be- because of that little moment, I thought, oh, he's going to put a tracking device on it. Right. But it turns out he doesn't. I'm really not sure what that's about. It, it It's forced and it's weird because it's not like he says, oh, the person that gives me the drive, I'm going to capture them too or something. That, you know, it could have been some sort of a sacrifice thing, but no, instead. It, and, and it seems like something was cut out of the script there. I agree. Like a tracker would have made perfect sense. Um... Yeah, because I guess because that's kind of the thing. Because it's after this that that um, Maggie Chan reveals what was actually on the drive, and that apparently um, the Soviet Union had this big uh, uran- secret uranium mine, and they had had produced a whole bunch of processed uranium for use in atomic weapons. Uh, but then, when the Soviet Union fell, the whole place just got abandoned and closed down, and and that's what was on the hard drive, where the exact location was the exact location of this mine. Uh, because that's what uh, Jean Valen is after, is all this refined uranium. Um, so, but they, they, it's so, it's, how do they, how do they track Valen? Because there's no tracking device, and it's unclear, like, whether Maggie was able to, like, actually go through that data in any detail and find that location, because it seems like they're searching for Valen. 
so yeah, I, I, you're right. It does feel like something is missing from the script at this moment. Well, but and the thing too is like at this point, the Expendables become really passive. They spend the night in this village, and then stuff start, starts happening to them. Happening to them, you know, they get attacked. Uh, civilians go and tell them what's going on with the lane. They're just sort of hand-fed all this information without really having to search for it. And I would have liked if it was more of a mystery. Um, yeah, because Jean-Claude Van Damme is in charge of this whole criminal syndicate, and while they're working their way to the mine, yeah, they stop in this abandoned village. Um, and there's a whole... And that, that's when we got that whole scene where they're where they're cooking and, and hitting on each other by talking about food preferences. Um, but, yeah, there's this, there's this whole shootout, and this this is where I, I guess the cameos start getting forced because in in the middle of the, sh- the shootout the tide starts to turn against the expendables uh, and all of a sudden a whole bunch of guys are taken out and out of the mist or out of the smoke to the theme song of the good the bad and I'm oh, sorry the theme song from a fistful of dollars comes Chuck Norris yep and who, uh... who I guess was told to be there at that time, but Stallone seems kind of surprised he's there at all. Like, it seems like it's just a coincidence that he's there. His entrance could have been better, I mean, because the build-up, the shootout, I think is fine, and then, like, a tank is coming, and that's a bit more dangerous for the Expendables, and they're like, oh, shit, they're really in it now. Then all of a sudden, you know, this magic man takes out everything, and it's Booker, and and Chuck Norris... um, I'm not terribly familiar with his movies, but I, I don't think he's that good here. He just seems sort of flat. Uh, there's there's even a line of dialogue that references the Chuck Norris joke meme. Oh yeah, it's like yeah, I thought I thought you were bitten by a king cobra. I was bitten by a king cobra, and after five days of agony, it died. Yeah, so which it, it really forced. Which it's funny, I didn't. It didn't even occur to me when I first heard that line that that was a reference to Chuck Norris facts. I just assumed that that was based on something that happened in one of his movies. I feel like they should have. I feel like there should have been two more of those. You know, use comedy threes, have two more of those crazy Chuck mm. Norris facts, but don't have them all come from him. Like hey, I've heard of this guy. He's you know he's the guy that you know started a fire by punching a tree or whatever the the fact du jour is. Right, and having um, the way he pops in and out of this movie is just distracting. It's sort of similar to the Jet Li character, where yeah, he, he helps yeah. him, he, he goes away, and then he pops up randomly sort of in the final battle. We'll talk about that more when we get there. But like, it just comes out of nowhere. It doesn't feel earned. It doesn't feel like... It just feels like he's in there just to get the Chuck Norris name on the credits. Like He doesn't feel yeah. like an integrated member of the group. He doesn't have a funny quirk to him. He also doesn't have a weird code name. <laughs> no, yeah, which is surprising. He doesn't have a call sign, you think. He has a reputation as a lone wolf, but, like, lone wolf isn't his name. <laughs> no, and he, he did do... That is a reference to a film he did called Lone, lone Wolf McQuaid. Yeah, it's a... Also, I'm... I don't like the use of the, uh... Of the Fistful of Dollars theme when he shows up. That, that... That really seems... It's... that That's just cheap. Now, if they had used the Fistful of Dollars theme and it was Clint Eastwood that came out to help him, that'd be something. You know, you're right. That would have that would have made a kind of sense, and I'm also kind of shocked he's not in here. Although, if he was in one of these movies, I bet he'd play a senator they have to rescue or something. But yeah, 
like it it should be I guess it should be an iconic piece of music from us uh, from a Chuck Norris property, but there really isn't aside from the Walker Texas Ranger theme song. <laughs> Although yeah, that true. does kind of have a, a slightly badass riff to it, so maybe if it was just an acoustic version of that, that would have worked. You're right. It, it, that is a bizarre choice. Um, so a, as we have this, uh, as before Booker departs, he tells the the people, "Oh, there's a nearby village. The residents they don't like John Valane." And uh, meanwhile, it goes back to the mines, and Valene is is telling his people to to get the plutonium, like dig it up even faster than they're doing it. And you see all these beleaguered uh, old old men and women collecting the plutonium for him that he's trying to sell in the black market. Oh yeah, and, and, you know, and he I shoots think, one of them because he gets tired and whatnot. Right, and you know, I the thing I found Villan's introduction where he kills Billy pretty compelling. Unfortunately, all this stuff in the mines, it just looks so dark and dingy, and he has so little to do. I wish he would have had, I don't know, better scenes to work with. Hmm. Because it's just him, you know, like in a jeep or walking along the mines, just barking out orders, but it's not, he doesn't make him much of a character. Yeah, well, I mean, he's 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 evil and not much else except during his introduction, right. he's giving that speech about goats. Uh, he could have he could have used some more of that. Like, I feel like th- there is a tradition in like '80s action movies of having a villain that's kind of like overly poetic about their particular brand of evil. I think he could have used a few moments like that. Like, like at one point, I was been... hoping if they could, if he would, like, what if he summoned like a satanic goat creature? <laughs> Well, I don't think this movie needs to introduce magic, but I, you know what I actually think it needs? I think it needs a speech where he talks about the kind of world that's going to be built because of the uranium that they're going to smuggle. Is that, yes, right, and something and, where and how some... You know, uh, you know, and in that world, it will be our world. And, exactly, you know, yeah. The world of the gold. Mission statement. But yeah, the Expendables do get to that village, and this is... Um, and and the whole deal is that so all the people working in the mine those were all men that were kidnapped from this village the village is populated entirely by women yep who who would they i i would i would have liked to have seen a lot of the women there kick a little bit more ass cuz like when the bad guys do show up instead we get all the expendables like disguised as nuns and old women and whipping off their disguises as the bad guys approach and this is an action scene that I like. This is an action scene that tries to attain the heights of the first of of the opening action scene. Mm. Like it's it start it's it's fast, it's over the top. You can clearly tell what's happening. And you don't oh wish God, there would have been a scene where some of the expendables dressed as nuns would have flirted with Valon's men. <laughs> well, you know it would it would just be Terry Crews that they would use for that. Because t- Terry so. Terry Crews has so much charisma. And it has such great comedy chops. Like it would, it, those would just be his scenes. But this, this is the, also the scene where the quips start going into meltdowns because they, they've been having these action movie type quips throughout this throughout this film. But it's here when Tolro disguises the nun goes, "I now pronounce you man and knife," and <laughs> throws throwing <laughs> knives in two people's necks. That's that's when the quips start reaching critical mass and start to get annoying when they should get funny. Yeah, it's uh, some of that is a bit much. It gets especially bad sort of in the the final few action sequences, but 
we're not quite there yet. So um, they go from the village to the mine itself. Yep, there's there's an assault on the mine. However, Valane uh, uh, gets away with the trucks full of uranium, and he's rigged the mine with explosives and uh, collapses the entrance to the mine, trapping everybody inside. Also, when the last uh, uranium cylinder is loaded, he kicks the people who, who, who got it for him into the storage unit and drops this vault door over it. We never get any indication that those people are ever rescued, so I can only assume they died in the mine. Yeah, that's a gruesome detail for sure. And the but, expendable is trapped in a mine. Is I just think such an uninteresting premise. Well, they don't really do anything with it aside no. uh, uh, aside from uh, excuse me aside from uh, uh, Dolph Lundgren's character. So. Early on in the movie, when they're in the bar, uh, Dolph, they make reference to Dolph Lundgren's character having a, uh, a master's degree in chemistry, which Dolph Lundgren does have a degree in chemistry. Um, yep. And so he does this whole thing where he's using his knowledge of chemistry to make a bomb using gunpowder salvaged from their ammo and um, like some, some phosphate scraped from the rocks. And then it just fizzles. It just doesn't go out. It just doesn't go off. It's, it's very anticlimactic. I'm not saying we need an explosion. I'm not saying that his plan should be what frees them. But they hold on this explosive for so long. It's practically a fart joke, the way just a little puff of steam comes out of the, the, the pipe bomb he's made. Yeah, it's not a, not a very satisfying moment, to be but sure. For, for this to work, I think they really should have like belabored him making the bomb, maybe even use a montage set to like an 80s power ballad <laughs> where they're gathering all the materials they need and he's setting it up. But the way they get out is Schwarzenegger comes driving through the wall of the mine with this crazy, with the dildozer from Idiocracy. That's what he uses. And he, he says he's back and that's how they get out. And he's also there with Church. And it's um, it's nice to see as they're doing an assault on the airport where Valon and his men are trying to leave with the plutonium, that you get to see Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis join in on the action because we never got that in the first film. And this and this is when the the quips really become a problem because they start using each other's catchphrases. You know, Schwarzenegger says "Yippee Kaye," uh, Bruce yeah. Willis does many variations on being back. And it just it just becomes so grating and so on the nose. It would have been it would have been so much funner if like everyone got to use the other person's catchphrase, but they didn't they didn't like belabor it. They it just make make it a funny little thing, or even stretch it out more throughout the scene instead of clumping it so close together. Um, yeah, pepper it throughout the movie. Don't put them all in in one big exchange. <laughs> Right, it just makes it all the more noticeable. Um, and this is also when the gunplay gets really frustrating, because when they... We, we talked about in the first film, when they rescue the hostages from Somali pirates, they lay down just a hellacious amount of gunfire, but of course none of the hostages get hit, even though they're right in the middle of the Somali pirates. Same thing happened when they went into the mine and started shooting at Valaine's goons. They're intermixed with the hostages... The hostages never get hit. Same thing happens at the airport. Bullets are flying all over this airport, and it's full of civilians. And they are they don't get a scratch. Not just that, but you see some of the plutonium gets knocked off the trucks. 
And, well, it's um, not going to explode. I, but no, but it, you think they would do something with it? Yeah, I, well, it is. I guess it, I'm, I'm wondering how how radioactive that stuff is because I, I can only presume that it's like it's it's alloyed with some other metal to cut down on the radiation, and you would do something to to make it purer before you put it into a into a bomb. But but yeah, a lot of people get radiation exposure in this film, and nobody seems to mind. <laughs> But this is, right. but there's some there's some cool you know fight scenes in there. A guy gets uh, gets kicked into the blades of a helicopter. Um, you know, lots of mayhem at the airport. We do get the final showdown uh, between uh, Barney Ross and Villain, and this is something that really frustrated me because before because uh, uh, Barney Ross is fighting with uh, Maggie Chan uh, throughout all this. And when he goes off to confront Villain, he tells Maggie Chan not to follow him and to hang back. And I'm like, oh, Maggie Chan's going to show up at the last second and save his bacon. No, she doesn't. She does. She is not seen or heard from again until long after Villain is dead. Right. Also, with the the scene with Villain, it's um, they use a lot of like choking each other with chains and and stuff, which was different. And I, I remember when this came out uh, in the press, uh, Jet Li was complaining that he was frustrated that his character didn't get a chance to fight one on one against John against uh, John Claude Van Damme because Jet Li oh, is also known so for his cool. kick moves as well, and that would have been really interesting. Yeah, that but, um, would have been awesome to, to have the the two top martial artists in this film go off against one another. That would have been great. Right, but instead they they don't do that. You get sort of this really sort of more of a wrestling match between the two um that being said i, I mean they take better go well, on. they take advantage of their environment yeah they kind of weaponize the environment they're in which is really good that always gets me more invested in the fight scene but but again like it it this sequence fails to live up to the standards set by the opening action sequence it falls short for me it does. It's very murky. I think part of it too is the Expendables. They're a team, and when you you reduce it down just to one guy against another guy, this could be a scene from any movie. It doesn't. It just yeah. doesn't feel like it, it's taking the full advantage of the the group we have to work with. I, yeah, I do kind of wish some other team members were here to take their pound of flesh from Van Damme. That that yeah, it it is anticlimactic. And also surprisingly brutal when when uh, Stallone just starts whipping him with those heavy iron chains. Yeah, that is nasty. <laughs> like I, I okay, I've been hit by a chain by accident. They fucking hurt, and I'm lucky I didn't break my arm. <laughs> right, and you you uh, you do a good job with the makeup and making Jug Clyde Van Damme look really beat up, and his face just is looking really like pathetic and worn as the fight goes on. I almost was feeling sorry for him. Um. Hmm. Yeah. So when when so when when the smoke clears and uh, you know the surviving bad guys are being arrested, and I guess the Expendables are just allowed to walk, no questions asked. You know, they uh, he uh, Stallone uh, runs into church, and you know the church talks about how you know they'll 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 call it even. Um, but can he prove he got? Can he prove he got Valaine? And uh, Stallone just has Valaine's head in a sack. <laughs> and hands it over. 
That's that seems needlessly brutal, but it is kind of sad. After all the shit that Valaine's done, it is kind of satisfying to have his head literally taken and handed over uh, to church. Right. But, uh, you know, their plane was destroyed earlier in the film, so Church says, oh, but I pulled a few strings and I've secured a new vehicle for you. And it's this this rickety old plane. Not the plane that they have in the other movie. It's just this other rickety old plane. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, for something for them to go home. And, and they get on and, the you know, plane they... and they toast Billy... Yeah, because earlier, like when they gave their their funeral for Billy, they put him in a cairn. Uh, you know, they read they read this letter that he was wanted them to deliver to his girlfriend, and uh, one of the a scene that is kind of satisfying, but I wish we could have seen her mourn a little. Is that Billy's girlfriend is like leaving? I guess, I guess she's a student. I guess she's leaving her her college, and there's this big box, and the box is loaded with money. Um, so I guess they got paid for this, even though they were doing it to settle a debt in the first place. I don't know. Maybe there was a bounty that they mm. collected on the lane, but it's loaded with money and it's got a picture of, uh, it's got a picture of Billy the Kid and it's got that last letter. And that was, that was kind of touching. I liked, I liked that they tried to do right, uh, by, I guess not Billy's widow since they weren't married, but, but to do right by, by this, this woman in his life. Uh, then, you know, it ends with all of them on a plane and we go out to another classic rock song. <laughs> yep. As the credits go on. And I, I think, you know, overall I did like this movie more than uh, the original. It, it's still lumpy. It's not perfect by any means. And yet I did enjoy, despite its flaws, I did enjoy it um more than the first film. Oh, and that song was uh, I Just Want to Celebrate uh, by Rare Earth. Yes. Good song. But yes, I guess, like, in the end, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to give this one a sequel, yes. I mean, it was, despite its flaws, it was much more fun than the first film. I did, in, I did enjoy it. I think the performances are better. Uh, the action is more heightened in a way that really helps the film. Uh, I just, I, I just wish uh, Maggie Chan got to do more in the story, and I, I wish we could have had Mickey Rourke back. Yeah, no, I think this movie is kind of a mixed bag, but I, I, I enjoyed it a, a good bit more than the first one. I'll also give it a sequel, yes. I, uh, and I agree. I, I think your, your point is well taken, that it doesn't quite reach the heights of what we saw at the beginning of the film. There's something about how everything came together in that opening rescue mission that doesn't quite work in the rest of the film. Yeah, that I I almost wonder is there a way they could have restructured the story so that that action sequence is how they ended things. I don't know, but that would have been more satisfying. Like maybe you know maybe Billy maybe Billy's not dead maybe he's he's held hostage and so they're rescuing Billy at the end. Right. Um, okay. Well, what yeah. would you do for a pitch a sequel? I. I really want to know. I'm going to pitch another prequel. I really want to know about that mission that went south that got uh, that got Ross in Church's debt. Uh, so we're going to see that mission go south. Uh, we're going to see, and, and Mickey Rourke is sure as hell going to be there. Uh, 
but we'll make that a bit more of a period piece. We'll have that take place in the 90s. We'll make it 90s as hell. We'll, we'll reference 90s action movies. We'll have Stallone say, I am the law at some point. Just really, mm. really take advantage of the 1990s period. Would you use CG to make it um, make him look younger? N- no. Uh, this is this is the other thing. I want it to be more absurd. I wouldn't do anything to make the cast look younger, except give them whatever haircuts they had in the nineties. Okay, so you'd have the wigs, but other than that, uh, yeah, yes, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. In, fa- in fact, um, Bruce Willis as Mister Church would wear the same wig he wore in Death Becomes Her. There you go. It would be a Get very wig heavy movie. Closet. I'd also I'd also pull a Dr. Hibbert with Terry Crews. I'd give him a different hairstyle in every scene. Oh, that would be good. Sure. Well, cool. And what would you call it? Oh, got um Expendables Expendables 3 uh The Shakedown. All right. If uh Oh, we'd also learn, just to make the characters a bit more sympathetic, we also learned that it's not just that they failed. Because what were they, what was it? They were like stealing like a vault full of money or something from a dictator or something like that. We, we find out that the mission didn't exactly fail. It's that Stallone delivered that money to someone else who needed it more. Yeah. He didn't do what they wanted to do. a little bit of a Robin mission. Hood angle. Right. Um... If I were doing a sequel to this, I would call it, like, uh, The Expendables 3, The Final Mission. I would have it where Barney, he's, uh, Barney Ross, played by Stallone, of course, is getting up there in age. He doesn't want to keep on doing this. But he's, uh, he's convinced for one last, uh, he's going to do one last mission that's going to involve more, more globe-trotting than we've seen in the past. We have a real <laughs> epic final adventure for them to go out and before he starts the mission he uh he's drinking at the bar and this girl comes up to him and, and she seems a bit young and it turns out she is his daughter that he never really had and she hmm. insists on going along and there'll be a lot of sort of comic relief involving that and the, as the the villain trying to think of a good action star to cast I think as a villain you'd you'd have sort of like the first film two different villains you'd have Hmm. uh, one would be sort of the person the actor handling most of the dialogue I would have that be Clint Howard (laughs) and as Clint Howard's muscle who'd be sort of the real villain of the piece I would say you would have to do, uh, why not have Arnold Schwarzenegger be the villain this time? Would he be the same character or just him playing a different role? He'd be the same character. Hmm. But he I would thought be... you were going to say Steven Seagal. No, he would be a turncoat, and that would be sort of a mystery in the story, and he has motivations for doing so, and you'd get to see Schwarzenegger versus... Stallone in an action scene, which I think would pay off something that people have been wanting to see one way or another. And I would just call it the final Expendables. Now, would would you have a role for Steven Seagal in yours? 
Steven Seagal would be in there, but he would only be in, uh, there would be a scene in between missions in the film where they go to a concert in Steven Seagal's band. <laughs> I'm going to shock he isn't in here. Hey, but speaking of bands, do you know the soundtrack to this featured the song You Don't Want to Fight With Me by Frank Stallone? Yes, and you hear it very briefly in the film when they're in the bar. It's sort of a rockabilly uh, kind of tune. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this film's Take It Back. Oh, it's no Take It Back, but sure, I think that Frank Stallone <laughs> is in there. I found, not not surprising, but pretty amusing, um, as all that goes. So, okay, so um, I'm wondering, Thrasher, what have you been watching? Well, I saw, I saw some interesting films. So uh, recently, uh, in the theaters, I saw the horror film Hellfest, directed by Gregory Plotnick, screenplay by Seth M. Shearwood, Blair Butler, and Akila Cooper. Okay. So, so this is a film with a really interesting premise, where there's it's it's clearly modeled after those Universal Studios uh, Halloween Horror Nights, where there's this big sprawling sort of haunted house themed theme park but it turns out one of the people in costume at the theme park is a serial killer or a slasher killer knocking off uh, guests one by one and it being this crazy interactive environment where there is a lot of fake blood and actors pretending to be murderers and victims it allows the killer to hide in plain sight so it's a really interesting premise um, however the second half of the movie it keeps the, it, the sadly the film gets weaker and weaker. The first half of this film is really good, but after it crosses the midway point, um, the movie the movie starts to fall apart. Mm. And and it, there's also clearly someone involved in this movie wants to create a franchise out of it. Did it set, it, like, set it, itself up for a sequel or at the end or? Well, what it is, so I guess you know, spoil. This is your only spoiler warning you're going to get, so you may want to skip ahead five to ten uh, minutes. But the short version is um, t- one thing that's really cool: we never learn the identity of the killer. Oh, huh? Okay. Um, the killer never. The killer does take off their mask, but when they do, we only see them from behind, and they mm. get away scot free. They never get caught. Um, though they do survive an improbable injury that probably should have killed them uh, at the end. Uh, so the killer does live to kill again, and because the film starts with a flashback at a different haunted house, we know the killer has killed before. So this is somebody who does this, you know, presumably like every Halloween or every other Halloween, uh, whenever there's a big horror attraction. So the killer could absolutely come back. Um, but two... They work so hard to make the killer's look be iconic in that Jason Voorhees scream, Ghostface Killer, uh, Freddy Krueger kind of way. Like clearly, this is a look they want yeah. to bring back. Although, at the end, both in the flashback and at the end, when we see the killer's trophy case, you find out that he wears a different mask every time he does this. So, if there was a sequel, he would be wearing a different mask, unless they contrive some way to put him in the same one again. Well, it sounds like that's a unique enough premise, I think, for a horror film. Yeah, I mean, it's. I would. I would like to see a sequel, if only to see this premise done better. Um, you know, because this and this is also it's also a movie that 
that takes advantage of the fact that cell phones exist. Uh, and there's there's a really effective scene. So one of the character's boyfriends gets killed very early on, and the killer takes his cell phone, and is text and is texting the girlfriend off and on throughout the film. Mm. And at one point, the girlfriend realizes she's trapped in a room with the killer because she texted she texts her boyfriend and hears the boyfriend's ring uh, text tone in the same room. Oh, that's cool. And they get some good horror out of that. Unfortunately, after that scene, they never they never use that again. But they do successfully use the cell phone to build tension. Um, and also, like, I love the fact that when uh, it takes a while for the main characters to realize what's going on, I think as it should, and they do go to the authorities, and of course the authorities don't believe them, because this is a place full of actors pretending to be killers and villains. Of sure. course you didn't see a real murder. That was had to be part of the show. Okay, that sounds pretty neat. I might have to check that one out. Um, I was watching... So recently I got hold of a uh, Import Region 2 DVD player. Nice. And I, I found um, a few things that were pretty much UK exclusive that were too cheap to pass up. And one of them is this big box set of those Michael uh, Palin documentaries called Travels with Palin. Oh, cool! So it's not everything. It's all of it up to a point. But what's what's crazy is it has on there... His very first travel documentary appearance was not Around the World in 80 Days. It was some series called... Uh, oh, I think it's called like The Great Railways of the World or something. And he did one episode of that a few years before being offered the Around the World in 80 Days show. And that was done in the early... I think, like, in the mid-80s. Like, it's pretty... He looks pretty young. It's, you know, not too far after Monty Python's Meaning of Life. Um, but I've been watching, you know, some of that and the original Around the World in 80 Days series. I think he's done a few versions of that. And it's... um. What's interesting is he says, okay, I'm going to do the same, you know, path as in the novel by Jules Verne around the world in 80 days, but I'm going to make it, I'm not going to cheat, I'm not going to take airplanes, I'm just going to take cars or trains or boats. Cool. And it's all these political things that hold him up that make him, um, I'm not quite done with it yet, but I assume he he does it in 80 days. I, but I just got to the point where he's going from China to Japan. But it it mentions, like, the BBC, you know, planned, financed the whole thing and planned it out way in advance. And then he shows up and they're like, oh, well, this boat, it's um, it's not going to leave for five days instead of one. So some, a lot of times he has to try and figure and try to work out a different deal. Um, and just having... You know, although he's Michael Palin, he's on these ramshackle boats sleeping out underneath the blue sky uh, with a little towel on top of him as a blanket. <laughs> like, it, a lot of it's pretty um, pretty humbling, and it's not... Uh, one weird part, he's in um, Hong Kong. He happens to run into a guy at a bar that's a director, and they have him as a part in the film... But all it is is he plays man in elevator. Hmm. So if they have this actor, Michael Palin, 
to using some random Indian film. I don't know if they didn't realize who he was, but they just have him in a scene with no dialogue of him walking out of an elevator. Well, you know, that's funny thing is that's happened to him before. He did, did a uh, huh. one of his travel documentaries about Australia, oh, and he okay. ended up getting a walk-on part in an Australian soap opera. Oh, huh. And like, and and it's just, and they and they even show the scene in the documentary, and it's just you know the two leads talking on a beach, and Michael Palin like runs by in a wetsuit and a surfboard, going, "Oh boy, these waves are wonderful," or, or something. Yeah. He he's, he yeah. comments to them something. He gets a line. I, that that ha- keeps happening to him. He shows up to make a documentary, and then he gets a part in something. Right. Um, I, know, I, I really I, like his travel documentaries. No, that one he did about the said. Sahara was fascinating, and he really immerses himself into those places. Yeah, um, he's in fact still does it. He recently did a, a two-part one going to North Korea, which looks pretty cool. And mm. uh, yeah, I'm expected to have fun working my way. Through this set, I like it's more of a leisurely pace. Uh, on Twitter, I was kind of making fun of the music on it because it sounds like music from an old video game or something. It's very synthesized. Uh, someone pointed out to me they used a lot of... Uh, the BBC had a lot of source music they kept on using over and over again in their shows. And I swear, on one of these um, great railway programs Michael Palin was on, one bit of music sounded like they it was also used in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, BBC program. I would love to hear that because I often have an ear for that kind of thing. Yeah, like it, it, you could hear the theremin and everything. If not, it's very close, and it, it had nothing to do with trains. <laughs> like it. Was, um, uh, one more funny anecdote, anecdote from the documentary. He goes, uh, one of them. He goes to I think Ireland, and uh, there's a a little small town called Holywood, not Hollywood, but Holywood, and the town's so small, the, the main movie theater's closed, but instead there's a cottage industry of people having movie theaters in their garages that uh, neighbors go to, that neighbors go to every night. And it was just absolutely charming, if not, you know, probably not really legal technically, but it was just something I was not expecting to see. Interesting. Uh, what's something else you've been watching? Well, I also revisited uh, revisited something from my youth. Uh, I watched Urusai, uh, Urusai Yatsura 2, Beautiful Dreamer, uh, which is uh, it's an animated film released in 1984 based around, or based on the comic book uh, or manga Urusai Yatsura, uh, which I think better known in the United States simply as Lum, named after the female protagonist. Uh, mm. This was a movie that I saw on cable during the 90s uh, anime boom, uh, and for the most part, it holds up. When you say it, cable, it, I'm guessing Sci-Fi Channel? Uh, yes, it did, yeah. in fact, air on the Sci-Fi Channel. This was during this was during that weird period where they did an anime... Because they did... Sci-Fi Channel used to do these anime marathons, which were really good. Um, Ralph Bakshi hosted one of them. I think, I think hmm. he, he was the best. This was during the time when Apollo Smile hosted one... And I was I was not satisfied with her as a host, if only because I felt like she she was infantilizing the medium. Um, but but she did give me an opportunity to see this movie for a first time, so this would be me watching it for a second. Uh, I love the look of this movie. There, there's something about the '80s anime aesthetic that I I find really pleasing to the eye. And the uh, the other thing that I didn't that that I love about this movie. Uh, it assumes that you have familiarity with these characters in their world because there is no exposition. 
But ah, so, the opening yeah. scene at least establishes their personalities. But other than that, it does not hold your hand. So is this a movie where it had a, a series to begin with, or it's a sequel to another movie? Well, it's it's a sequel to another movie. I believe, if I remember correctly, there were a trilogy of Ursurai Yatsura movies that came out in the early '80s, and this is just the second one. Uh, it has, although the the manga has been adapted to animation several times. Uh, I there, see. there have been multiple television series and OVAs. Well, in, in a way, that's kind of nice. You, you get to see things go on where um, you know it doesn't have to waste a lot of time reintroducing these characters. It sort of hits the ground running with the story, and uh, it's and it's also just weird. Yeah, um, because did like, you the, notice the whole... any kind of material that wasn't there in, on the TV broadcast? I know it's been several years, but... Uh, it, 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 no, it, it has been several years. I, uh, I, Off the top of my head, I honestly cannot recall anything that might not be there. I know there is a scene where we see one of the characters' collections of dirty magazines. I'm pretty sure that would have ended up censored on the Sci-Fi Channel. But beyond that, I am not sure. Okay, um... One more thing for me. I've been on a documentary kick, as I mentioned, and uh, on Hulu I saw a documentary called Becoming Bond, oh. all about George Lazenby. And uh, the format of the doc is directed by the same fella that did the documentary about the Dana Carvey show. Um, and the, the weird thing with this one is, most of it is just a camera directly on George Lazenby, and now, you know, a pretty old man, talking about his life. And a lot of it is, um, they do historical recreations of what happened using actors. And, and when they get to the point of George Lazenby going, getting on the Johnny Carson show, they have Dana Carvey play Johnny Carson. Huh. And uh, the only other actor I recognized in the reenactments, of which there's many, but I think they're they're well-filmed and well-done, and they have to do that, because otherwise it would just be an old guy talking to the camera the whole time, which visually is not too interesting. Um, playing the part of Harry Saltzman, one of the James Bond producers, uh, is... Um, oh, I can't think of the guy's name now. The, the fat guy from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Danny DeVito? No. From, um, God, Ralph Garman. That's oh, it. Ralph Garman. So um, it was, but I mean, yeah, it goes into the story of how he started out as this, uh, really as a car salesman in Australia. Went to London to follow a, a girl he was interested in. Ended up, you know, being a car salesman, became a model, became really part of the whole swinging six, uh, 60s sex scene uh, over in swinging London, and ended up getting the part of James Bond despite having no acting experience whatsoever and lying about his credentials. Huh. And what surprised me is, I don't know about you, but there's been a kind of revisionist history I've heard over the years about how, oh, the... The George Lazenby film, um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, it lost a lot of money, that's why Sean Connery did it. And actually, no, it was like one of the best grossing James Bond films at the time. And in fact, they gave him an offer to be James Bond for six more films. And he turned it all down. Huh. And he talks about now, in retrospect, that being a mistake, but he still had a life that he enjoyed and everything, and uh, still did acting and so forth. But, um... It's a really just supremely entertaining set of 
stories. And you see he has some regrets and... Uh, especially if you like a lot of 70s stories about uh, crazy drug orgy crazy drug orgies and whatever else is going on. There's a whole lot of those. It's more about that than about James Bond, really. Um, at the same time, they do use some archival footage of the real George Lazenby, who looks nothing like George Lazenby now in his 70s, or, and also looks nothing like the actor that plays him in the reenactments. Huh. But it's called Becoming Bond. It's quite interesting. I wasn't expecting much from it, and it was pretty good. Oh, and I, uh, I did. I so I had mentioned uh, the Golden Globus documentary earlier. If you do want to find it, uh, the title of the documentary is Electric Boogaloo: The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films. We actually, we've talked about it before on this podcast. Although I think the last time we talked about it was about a year ago. Yeah, no, I've seen that one. It's um. It's pretty good. They also get into a lot of the Charles Bronson shows they did. Uh, oh, yeah. They talk um, talk about Masters of the Universe, all sorts of things, yeah. So, I, I think my favorite part of that documentary was towards the end where they talked about uh, the, the brothers had broken up, but each of them made a competing sexy dance movie about, like, the forbidden dance. Yeah, Lombada, the Forbidden Dance is Lombada, and Lombada, the Forbidden Dance. Yeah, um, which is amusing. Uh, well, good. Well, uh, next week we'll be talking about The Expendables 3, and then after that we'll be, uh, you know, be head into October talking a bit about the... Um, the back half of Nightmare back on Back half, Street. thank you, of Nightmare on Elm Street. And we'll talk a little bit about some more of that TV show as well. And if you are in Portland, Oregon, on December 20th, I'm doing a live sequel cast panel. Here are some friends talking about the video game movies of Uwe Boll. Um, the panel is from 7.30 to 8.15, kind of later in the evening, but it's a fun convention. They have a lot of old video games you can play for free. Of course, you can buy video games. You can also see people there like the angry video game nerd, all sorts of uh, different personalities there. It's well worth your time, so if, if you're in the area, I'd love for you to come out and check out the show. At uh, check out, Just look up uh, Uwe Boll Video Game Movies panel at the uh, Portland Retro Gaming Exposition for 2018. And if you're going to be at Con on the Cob uh, in Richfield, Ohio, November 8th through the 11th, I will be there as well. I'll be running a lot of tabletop events. I am going to be running a Choose Your Own Adventure Massacre, which is a combination Choose Your Own Adventure book live reading slash improv comedy show. Uh, I am in the process of trying to get a movie-related podcast event on the schedule. I will have more information on that when it develops. Cool, great. And... Um... Right, so you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. So for sequel cast two, we're going to do the scene before wrapping uh, up the show. Ah, uh, yes, the sequel scene. So for the sequel scene, what did you pick? Uh, this is a pick, uh, this is uh, a scene uh, with... Uh, this is this is the scene where uh, Church and Barney confront each other uh, after they have uh, after the Expendables have lost the data to Villain. Okay, and who do you want to play? Uh, I'll do Church. Okay, I'll be Barney. So, so again, what's taking so long, Barney Ross? This should have been a walk in the park for you guys. Where's the case? I don't have it. 
I warned you what would happen to you mutts if you pulled this shit again. Goodman died trying to get that case. Hey, I'm sorry about that. Are you? Yes, as a matter of fact, I am. But this sort of situation comes with the territory, wouldn't you say? So does payback. You know, Church, you're the kind of guy that pulls the strings and everyone else does your dirty work because you never had the guts to do it yourself. We're done. You started drifting into John Wayne territory there. Again, yeah. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I I need to try and work on my Stallone. I used to have a pretty good Stallone, and now it, um, I was trying to relax the... trying to do the droopy lip thing, and John Wayne came out, so... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I could do... <laughs> okay. You so, know, I'm uh, kind of shocked that Stallone hasn't played John Wayne in a biopic. Speaking of John Wayne, um, sort of, Stallone <laughs> is filming Rambo 5, and the scenes from the set is uh, Rambo in jeans and a button-up shirt with a cowboy hat. <laughs> Very strange. Uh, I, I've heard the story takes place in he's he's rescuing someone's daughter from Mexican bandits or something. But seeing Rambo with a hat does not work. It doesn't even look like Rambo. Um, very bizarre. But you can you can see that on Stallone's Instagram. I'm imagining well, that that style consultant. What was it, Sisto? Yeah. So, for sequel cast two, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying. The goat, the pet of the devil. <laughs> <laughs>